Um, we're reading from Isaiah and Matthew, so if you'll turn with me to page six of your zines. Isaiah 53, one to six. Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray, each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Um, And from Matthew, we're looking at Matthew 12. Then they brought him a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute, and Jesus healed him so that he could both talk and see. All the people were astonished and said, could this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, it is only Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this fellow drives out demons. Jesus knew their thoughts and said to him, and said to them, every kingdom divided against itself will be ruined and every city or household divided against itself will not stand. If Satan drives out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then can his kingdom stand? And if I drive out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do you, your people, drive them out? So then, they will be your judges. But if the Spirit of God that I, but it it is by the Spirit of God that I drive out the demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. This is the word of the Lord. It's certainly um, a happy or solemn coincidence that our topic today is Jesus the healer who mends everything. Um, Jesus certainly hasn't healed Ben. Um, This two-year roller coaster um, has had a lot of prayer and no healing. But as Ben would uh, point out, uh, if he were here, I mean, he's in the next room, but not able to join us, um, he, he would say that's not what the, Je- the healings of Jesus are about. They're not a promise for faith healing in our, in our present, uh, even though I believe God can and does um, hear our prayers for healing. But Jesus' healings um, through the Gospels, those first century biographies of his life, are more a picture of the restoration of all things in what Jesus called the kingdom come. I mean, I really think the healings of Jesus were historical, actual, real healings, but their main purpose was to point to uh, the kingdom. I said last week in uh, the talk about Jesus as teacher that the heart of Jesus' teaching was this expression known as the kingdom of God, that God will one day take all of the discord of this life and somehow weave it into his Uh, beautiful, eternal melody. And the language of ancient Judaism and of Jesus for this future restoration of all things was, as I said, the kingdom of God. The concept is simply that God will one day prove himself king over this fallen creation by overthrowing evil and establishing justice, 
by mending what is broken and by breathing life where there is currently um, death. If you have ever wished that the Almighty would do something about the mess in our world, you have wished for the kingdom of God, even if that's not language that um, you would normally use. And our records make perfectly clear that this was not mere empty words on the part of Jesus, mere pie in the sky when you die. Just think about the kingdom. Don't worry about the pain of here and now. That really isn't what uh, Jesus meant at all. The gospels say Jesus gave tangible signs um, of the restoration of everything in his healings. In his teaching, he preached the kingdom. In his healings, he gave a picture of the coming kingdom. So uh, last week, we looked at Jesus as teacher. This week, uh, Jesus, the healer. And um, I imagine there are really three kinds of questions we might want to ask about a topic like miraculous healings. There is the philosophy, um, some real good questions there, the history, and of course, the meaning uh, for now. I can only touch very briefly on each of these, but I want to take each of them in turn, if that's okay. Firstly, then, the philosophy of miracles. The philosophical argument about the plausibility or otherwise of um, believing in miracles has resulted in what you might call a grumpy stalemate amongst uh, philosophers. And both sides of the debate have sort of concluded that the rationality or otherwise of believing in miracles um, in the end comes down not to evidence for miracles, but on our background uh, beliefs about the kind of universe that we live in. If you think we're in one kind of universe, miracles are a real problem. If you believe we're in another kind of uh, nature of universe, then it's a very different issue. So what I mean to to put it in uh, a sentence, if I think the laws of nature define the limits of what's possible in the world, because there is no lawgiver or God behind the laws, then miracles cannot be seen as rational. And no amount of evidence could ever show that a miracle has taken place. My background belief forbids it. But if I think the laws of nature do not define the limits of what's possible in the world, because the laws themselves point to the God behind the laws, then since God could act in and beyond the natural laws, it is rational to believe in miracles where the evidence is good. I mean, to put it really simply, if, if you think there's probably a God, a creator behind the laws of nature, then you have the background belief that at least makes it theoretically possible to believe in miracles if there were good evidence. But if you don't believe there's any kind of God, all there is is the knowable laws of nature, then your background belief um, forbids the acceptance of any kind of evidence for miracles. So our background beliefs really play into this issue in a big way. And by the way, McCrindle Research, a local research company here in Australia, uh, found uh, a few years ago that 63% of Australians accept the possibility of miracles, 
which roughly corresponds to how many people uh, believe in God. Um, but it also found in the same survey uh, that 75% of Australians believe Jesus performed miracles. Now, just pause on that for a second. Um, it turns out more people believe that Jesus did miracles than believe miracles are possible, which I think tells you something delightful about um, the high esteem in which Jesus is held in this country. Anyway, leaving aside the philosophy, what about the history? Let me say a few things uh, about uh, what history has to say concerning the miracles of Jesus. If the reports of Jesus healing people were found only in a single source and perhaps a very late source, a source written, you know, hundreds of years after Jesus or whatever, then uh, you can be sure responsible historians would say, no, the story of Jesus healing is really just a, a slowly accumulating legend. Jesus was originally just a teacher. Uh, and as his disciples retold the story, they elevated him to be some kind of a healer. Uh, so, I mean, one could say um, that if the healings of Jesus were only found in, say, John's gospel, which most historians think is the latest of the gospels in our New Testament, written about 60, 65 years after Jesus, if that's the only place there was mention of miracles, and none of the earlier sources that we have that were written in you know, the 40s and the 50s AD, uh, mentioned the miracles, then it would be responsible, historically speaking, to say uh, Jesus was probably just a teacher and later sources um, sort of invented his idea of being a healer. But the problem is for the historian, Jesus' healings are attested in eight separate sources, all within living memory of Jesus. We have 13 references in the source known as the Gospel of Mark from the 60s, four in a source known as Q, written in the 50s, five in L uh, in the 60s, two in a source known as M, uh, seven in one called SQ uh, in 2 Corinthians, uh, which is written around 55, 56, uh, there's a reference, and in James 5, written in the early 60s. And uh, the last reference there, uh, Josephus Antiquities, um, is written within the first century. And it's particularly interesting because it's a non-Christian reference to Jesus doing uh, surprising feats or baffling deeds. The Greek here is paradoxa erga. Jesus performed paradoxa erga. It means weird or uh, um, extraordinary uh, actions or deeds. It's a neutral reference to Jesus performing healings. We actually have two non-Christian references to Jesus' miracle work. And my point is, um, Jesus' healings are attested in eight separate sources, all within living memory. That is, um, these sources were all written in a period where there are still eyewitnesses alive who can attest uh, to the claim in the sources. So the question is, how does this compare with other supposed miracle workers and healers uh, in the ancient world. And I want to give you two. There are probably five or six that we treat um, in um, the lectures on Jesus as healer at Sydney Uni. Um, but I want to give you the two best ones, the two closest ones, the ones that people say are the best parallels to Jesus. And it's worth doing this simply to compare the level of evidence that we have. The first is uh, Hanina Bendoza, who was active in Galilee a couple of decades after Jesus. 
And our one source uh, concerning his miraculous deeds reads, when he would pray for the sick, he would say, this one shall live or this one shall die. They said to him, how do you know? He said to them, if my prayer is fluent, then I know it is accepted and the person will live. But if not, I know that it is rejected and the person will die. Um, here is one source written 130 years after Hanina, and it's, it's our one source. And so the historian has to look at this and say, is, is that the kind of evidence you'd expect real miracle working to leave behind? And there's a debate uh, that can be had about that. My second example is from the non-Jewish or pagan world. It's the figure most often compared to Jesus in terms of being a miracle worker. His name is Apollonius of Tyana. He preached a kind of ascetic uh, neo-Pythagorean philosophy uh, in the second half of the first century, so um, a generation after Jesus. He died uh, around the year 100, and he's um, reported to have done healings. And some of the healings look like the sorts of things that Jesus is said to have done in the Gospels. But here's the thing. We have one source, just one source, uh, and it's the life of Apollonius written by the philosopher Philostratus. And it was written in the year 220. That is 120 years after Apollonius is dead. And it is our one biographical source uh, mentioning the miraculous work of Apollonius. So um, here's a diagrammatic uh, presentation of the evidence. Um, Hanina dies. We've got to wait 130 years before we have one source. Apollonius dies. We wait 120 years before we have a single source, referring to his miracles. Uh, Jesus dies. We have three sources within 20 years and eight sources within 60 years, that is, within living memory. And this is why scholars who don't even believe in the the um, possibility of miracles, who philosophically exclude miracles, nonetheless agree we have the kind of evidence a wonder worker would leave behind. Um, and even if they don't think there is such a thing as a miracle, they agree Jesus did things everyone thought were miracles. Here's a really good example from a top-tier scholar who is not a Christian, a professor at Boston University. Her name is Paula Fredrickson. She's a very uh, important scholar in the world uh, today. And she's written a lot about ancient Judaism, um, Galilee and Judea, and, and the historical Jesus. And she has a whole chapter on the healings or miracles of Jesus, where she puzzles through what she's going to do uh, with, with the evidence. Here's what she says. Did Jesus of Nazareth perform miracles? Here I, as a historian, have to weigh the testimony of tradition against what I think is possible in principle. I do not believe that God occasionally suspends the operation of what the Scottish philosopher David Hume called natural law. What I think Jesus might possibly have done, in other words, must conform to what I think is possible. Now, I mean, that's really interesting. It sounds like she's about to say Jesus didn't do miracles, but she does this whole historical analysis and nonetheless concludes, so to answer my own question, yes, I think that Jesus probably did perform deeds that contemporaries viewed as miracles. Those I have least trouble 
imagining his working are healings and exorcisms, which are the main miracles of the Gospels and certainly the ones uh, mentioned in our passage today. And this is a conclusion reached by virtually everyone writing on the historical Jesus uh, today. And um, behind me, all of these books in this this entire shelf are uh, historical Jesus volumes, the, the important ones. There are many more than these. Um, and they all come to this same conclusion, even, even the very sceptical ones, uh, the same conclusion that um, Jesus did things everyone thought were miracles. The evidence is just overwhelming. So it turns out we have exactly the kind of evidence we would expect if Jesus really did do miracles. And much more evidence pointing in that direction than we would expect if he didn't. By the way, the same can be said about the resurrection. Um, was it last year or earlier this year? I, I did a presentation on the resurrection uh, for you guys. Can't recall. I apologize. Um, but again, the evidence for the resurrection is, is similar. We have the kind of evidence you'd expect for the resurrection of Jesus, the ultimate miracle in the life of Jesus. Um, and it's this surplus of evidence that, that makes the healings of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus um, a continuing puzzle for even the secular historian today. We have the kind of evidence you'd expect, which is why I mentioned before that our background beliefs become so important. Because if your background belief is miracles don't happen, you have to just um, deal with the evidence that has remained. But if your background belief is there's probably a God who could do a miracle, um, well, we have the kind of evidence that a miracle would leave behind in one case, in the case of Jesus Christ. So uh, that's um, a little bit of the history um, and a little bit of the philosophy. Uh, let me uh, pivot to the meaning of the miracles. Um, the meaning of the miracles um, for Jesus and uh, for us today. So on the one hand, um, the healings of Jesus in the Gospels are simple acts of compassion and authority. And there are plenty of um, passages in the Gospels where that's made clear. Um, Jesus is moved with compassion for someone with an ailment and he heals them, or he'll do something, uh, you know, give sight to the blind. And, and we learn that, you know, people thought, wow, what authority must he have? Uh, and so on. Um, but Jesus himself gave his miracles a much more specific interpretation. And contemporary scholars, including all of these boffins over here, are really fascinated by this. And there's an awful lot of research about it. Um, independently of each other, uh, Luke's gospel and Matthew's gospel, which are two gospels that haven't been copied from each other, um, both record Jesus saying that his healings are previews or pictures of the coming kingdom. They are evidence that the future kingdom has broken into the present in his own uh, ministry. And uh, one of our readings uh, today um, uh, unpacks this. So here's just the two key lines that I, I want to reflect on. So in Luke's version uh, of Jesus saying, we read uh, following a, a healing uh, that Jesus performs. If I drive out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. That's Luke 11.20. In the Matthew version, um, it reads, if it is by the spirit of God that I drive out demons, 
then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Um, either way, um, the, the point is pretty clear that the healing that Jesus has just done, um, which the text says is related to demon possession, another whole topic worthy of a different talk, um, is a picture of the kingdom. If this has been done by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God in the future has broken in to the present. Um, Jesus taught that God would one day overthrow evil, mend what is broken, and breathe life where there is death. And the word for that is the kingdom of God. But here in Luke uh, 11 and Matthew 12, Jesus says the kingdom of God can be glimpsed can be previewed right here in his ministry through his miracles. Um, in miniature, if you like, we see the um, overthrowing of evil. We see the mending of what is broken in the world. Um, let me quote one of the key textbooks that we use at Sydney University for the study of the historical Jesus. Um, it's uh, written by a couple of very famous German scholars, Ged Tyson and Annette Mears, and it's called The Historical Jesus Comprehensive uh, Guide. But um, here's what they say about this specific theme that I'm, that I'm trying to unpack for us. Jesus combines two conceptual worlds which had never been combined in this way before. The apocalyptic expectation of universal salvation in the future and the episodic realization of salvation in the present through miracles. Nowhere else do we find a charismatic miracle worker whose miraculous deeds are meant to be the end of an old world and the beginning of a new one. This puts a tremendous emphasis on the miracles, and it is unhistorical to relativize their significance for the historical Jesus. The present thus becomes a time of salvation in microcosm. Now, I know that sounds extremely nerdy, but, but I actually think um, it, it's very precise and uh, beautifully put uh, for a couple of German academics. Um, but to put it more simply, I, I guess we could just say that if God's kingdom is the feature film that we're all waiting for, um, the healings of Jesus in history, recorded in our Gospels, are the trailer. They are the preview of the coming kingdom. The healings of Jesus tell us what is ultimately going to happen uh, in God's kingdom. Um, they tell us that justice will be done for the millions who have been oppressed by evil and tyranny. The healings of Jesus that break people free from evil point toward that overcoming of evil in the end. Uh, they tell us that mercy will be given to all those who want it in the kingdom of God. Our ailing bodies and this broken environment will be mended and glorified, and death itself will be undone. God will breathe life uh, where there is currently death. And of course, Christ's resurrection in history, is the ultimate preview of our own resurrection to eternal life. The miracles of Jesus, and especially the resurrection, 
tell us what kind of story we're in. Um, I know there are dystopian novels that trade in sort of relentless bleakness and hopelessness. And uh, I have mates who love that kind of novel. It's not, it's not my kind of novel. To my mind, the best novels uh, ever written are, are beautifully able to create intense tension that nonetheless hints at resolution. The best novels somehow create this bond of trust between the author and the reader. Um, the author drops into the story enough hints of a possible resolution that the reader can keep turning the page regardless of how dark the story gets. You can turn the next page in the hope that the author will be faithful to the hints in the story that this will be resolved. The miracles of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus in particular help me keep turning the page. They help me put one foot in front of another, no matter how dark uh, this story sometimes is. And I've never experienced a more confronting example than that of my best mate. Uh, like me, Ben found Jesus Christ as a 16-year-old at Mossman High School, having had no religion growing up. Uh, it was our scripture teacher, Glenda Weldon, here in this uh, shot uh, with us, um, who first introduced us to a sensible, generous Christianity that could take our smart aleck questions and somehow give a warm-hearted and intelligent reply. And, and this just drew both uh, Ben and uh, me and a couple of my other mates to really consider Christ. Um, having fought together, played football together, stolen together, uh, we found Christ together. We then started a band, we lived together, we toured the world together, we eventually uh, went to theological college and launched out into uh, ministries of, of preaching and, and writing. Uh, two years ago, what started as a toothache for Ben uh, developed into this cancer that's um, about to take his life. Uh, somehow in these last two years, uh, he finished another book. Um, it's not about his cancer. Uh, there's hardly a hint uh, of a mention of his cancer. I mean, toward the end, there, there's a couple of paragraphs that mention it. But it's a book about Christianity. It's called Seven Reasons to Reconsider Christianity. And amazingly, uh, Ben was able to make his own launch um, not two weeks ago got him up out of his very sick bed uh, to the launch. And I was able to interview him in front of a really nice crowd. And among the many questions I asked him um, was the obvious question. Has what you're going through uh, caused you to reconsider your Christianity? And it turns out he really believes in Jesus, the healer, Jesus, the risen Lord, who has pledged and promised and proven within history 
that he can breathe life where there is death, where he can mend everything. And it has been extraordinary to watch this close up as Ben continues to cling to Christ and hope in him for the mending of everything. So uh, from the other night, let me give the last word uh, to Ben. God bless. Uh, so Ben, uh, just one, one last question. Um, I guess the, the obvious question to put to you, you know, faced with what you face, is has what you're going through, particularly in these, you know, really hard days, caused you to reconsider Christianity yourself? Have I reconsidered Christianity for myself? Um, yes and no. Um, first of all, no, I've had such a strong faith growing up. You and I have been um, tremendously privileged to be under the teaching of Glenn Davies and many others, Moore College, um, uh, Glenda Weldon, this church, churches associated with it, that um, it's, it's, it should be of no surprise to you that I haven't had to reconsider my faith. It's, it's blindingly obvious to me. It's so true. It's so factual. It's so um, feasible. Um, and like Glenn said at the beginning, I can't understand why um, a biologist like David Attenborough can't have his mind biological mind switched on to a theological one. I, I can't get it. But having said that, um, I'm, it's also caused me to rethink, to reconsider, because you are facing eternity. You're looking at it squarely in the eye and you must reassess yourself um, and I think everyone who is in my position does that, at least at some stage, even on their deathbed. And it's caused me to do that. But I'm glad to say it hasn't budged me absolutely one inch. Yeah. Amen. Amen. Oh,